0: Get you using your gifts, um, for God. I also noticed y'all slid over to this side. Um, I'm always worried that the building's going to tilt too far, but they don't seem to care. So, uh, Revelation chapter 2. Also, by the way, when when we were singing Love Lifted Me, did anyone else ever, uh, stand on your tiptoes on Lifted? Yeah. Anybody do that? Okay. That wasn't just me? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was doing that. I was trying to hide it, but it's, compuls- it's compulsion now. Um, it's amazing how little things like that uh, stick with you. Revelation chapter 2, we are tonight going to a place called Pergamum. Um, Pergamum is situated on top of a hill, and there's a reason for that. Um, there's only one way to get to Pergamum. There's one side, one slope that is basically climbable. The rest of it is cliffs. And it's really, really hard to invade a city like that. And so typically, there's there's basically three ways you can protect a city. Number one is you can put a lot of water around it so that you put a city where there's a lot of water around so it's hard to get to. Um, another thing is you put it in the rocks like Petra or a place like that where it's really hard to, to get to. The other place is put it right on top of a hill. Now, you can't hide it right city on a hill can't be hidden but it's really really hard for people to get to you (laughs) and they're wore out from getting to you Uh, it makes it a lot harder for them to overtake the city and so um, sometimes you see ancient cities on top of hills jerusalem was a city on a hill Um, in fact the temple mount was the highest place in jerusalem in its day Uh, so everything in jerusalem looks up to the temple and that's on purpose Because when sometimes when when you are looking for something, something beyond yourself, you tend to look up. How many times have you sat or laid down in the grass looking up at the night sky? We can do that out here in the country. Um, They can't do that. Those city folk can't do that. Uh, There's too many lights around. But if you're away from the lights, you just look up and stare up into the night sky. Makes you feel tiny, doesn't it? Like like an ant. But we look up when we don't know where else to turn. When we're proverbially on our backs, with nowhere to look but up. We look up. That's why the Psalm of Ascents the songs of ascent in the Psalms begin. I lift up my eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? Because they need something greater. Greater than himself. Greater than his problems. Greater than the circumstances that he faces and the enemies that are pursuing him. He needs something greater. And so he looks just where we all do. He looks up. Up into the hills. The problem is people don't always look to the creator of the hills. They put things on hills to worship. Statues, wooden, metal, stone. This is your God. Serve this God. I don't understand what would make someone want to bow down to a statue, especially those who make the statues. But we need something greater than us. We need something to worship. And Pergamum is the type of city up on a hill where you expect to find a lot of worship, and boy, do you ever. They are worshiping like crazy in Pergamum. Look look at this picture of the city. First of all, let's locate Pergamum. Go back, go back. Let's locate it first. Okay, Pergamum, so John's writing down here in Patmos, We've already been to Ephesus and up to Smyrna. We're gonna skip a few towns along the trade route to get up here to Pergamum. He's gonna come back and hit those other ones in just a minute. But we're we're getting into the the Central Asia part. Um I believe at one point this city was the capital of the of the Roman province. And so kind of like in Albany, New York, where it's not really the biggest city, it's not really the most important city. But it is the capital, and so there's a lot of things that go on there. Pergamum was a city on a hill. Now, let's show the picture of the hill. You can actually see it's hard to make out some of the details um but the old city was up on top of this hill, and you can you can go there today and you can see there's remnants of the theater right here. The theater, there was other pictures, I didn't include these, but of someone sitting kind of at the bottom of the, of the theater, looking up into the stands, and it is almost straight up. It's, it's dizzying how straight up the seats are in the theater. Just built on the side of the hill. This was a place up here where they would worship the Emperor Trajan. There were other, um, Dionysius was worshipped there. Um, this was a place where a lot of plays would be put on in honor of the gods. In fact, if you've ever heard of Agamemnon was a famous Greek play that was written to worship gods and it was performed here in Pergamum. Everything they did centered around worship and no wonder with a hill as foreboding as that, with a place that that Anywhere around, whether you're, whatever side you happen to be on, this foreboding hill always towered above you. And there was always this sense to draw up this hill to worship something greater than yourself. And so we find in Pergamum the tendency to want to find something to worship. Now, there's two problems if you're a Christian. Number one, there's only one God. And number two, nobody else likes the fact that you're only willing to worship one God. And so Pergamum faced assaults on two fronts. There are the assaults from without and the assaults from within. Let's see what the Lord Jesus has to say to this church in this city on a hill. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write... The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, why would Jesus call himself this particular thing? Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Pray with me. Father, I pray the words that you sent to Pergamum would ring in our ears today. May they reverberate with the truth that passes through the ages that resonates within our hearts, that resounds within our actions. Father, bless the reading and the preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen. To the angel of the church in Pergamum. Why would Jesus call himself the one who has the sharp two-edged sword? I think one of the reasons for this is the fact that Pergamum was facing a double-edged sword. There were two threats that were facing the church in Pergamum. One was the threat from without. It was the persecution threat. It was the threat that said, you are either going to fall down and worship these gods or die. We don't know how much persecution was going on, but we do know at least one person. Look in verse 13 around the middle yet you all fast by name as you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas we have no record of Antipas outside of this text of scripture we don't know who he was we don't know where he was from we don't know why he was persecuted how he was persecuted none of that kind of stuff but we do know some of the martyrdom of other individuals we know of men like Polycarp who were martyred for the faith. We know some of the things that they faced, but we don't know Antipas. They did. In fact, Antipas, I'm, I'm, I'm almost willing to bet, was a resident of Pergamum, a member of that church. If not, he was well known to the church. And when he was persecuted for his faith, it hit home. You ever see that thing that just hits home? You're watching the news, and there's a burglary, or there's a shooting, or there's a fire. And then you see the street name, and it's your street. Or you see the, the name of victim, and it's someone close to you. Not necessarily family, but someone you know well. You hear of a person that has a heart attack all of a sudden, and it's someone you know. It hits home, doesn't it? There's something about it. If it's on the such and such block of whatever street, it doesn't matter. If it's in another place, it it kind of goes in one ear and out the other. You might be sad for a moment, but you kind of quickly move on from the news. But when it's your street, when it's your neighbor, when it's your friend or your family, it hits hard. This death hit close to home in Pergamum for whatever reason, this persecution really hit home with this church. I know where you dwell, he says, where Satan's throne is. What could he mean by that? Perhaps he was talking about this temple. This temple um, was one of the places where they came to worship. It's a reconstruction. It's ruined now, but this is a reconstruction. You could actually go to Berlin and see this reconstruction. Um, this is the temple to Zeus, and it almost looks like a throne, doesn't it? Yeah, maybe that's what he's talking about. Maybe he was talking about the fact that this was an imperial capital, a capital of uh, not necessarily the whole empire, but a capital of the province of Asia for Rome. Perhaps that's what he's talking about. Perhaps he just means that satanic influence is very strong in Pergamum, more so than anywhere else. Perhaps he's referring to the fact that it's set on a hill. Because what do you put on hills? Places of worship. And what's really being worshipped in Pergamum? It's not the false gods that don't exist. It's really Satan. Perhaps that's what he means. We're not quite sure exactly what he means by the phrase. There's so many different tie-ins. This is the place where Satan dwells. How would you like to have that on your postcard? <laughs> come to Prattville where Satan lives. Yeah, I don't think that would work very well as a marketing strategy. But that thats that's what John calls it. That's what Jesus calls it, that John writes in this book. I know where you live, where Satan lives, where his throne is. I know you live on the front lines of the battle. I know you live in the thick of it. I know you live where it's the worst, where the fighting is the hardest. The struggles are the most real. Isn't it good to have a God who knows where we live? There's some things, I I don't want certain people knowing where I live. It's just none of their business. I'm glad I have a God who knows where I live. I mean, as I mentioned this morning, He's the God who can find a worm to do his job. He's the God who can find an ant teach a lesson to a sluggard. He's the God who, who can track every little thing. And they all matter. I'm glad I have a God who knows where I live, who knows the struggles that I deal with, who knows the pain and the difficulty, the anguish, the toil. I have a God who knows where I live and he's the same God who knows where you live. He knows where your hurts are. He knows where your weaknesses are. He knows where your strengths are, where your talents are. He's the one who put those there. He's a God who knows where we live. I know where you live. And yet you hold fast by name. You don't give in to persecution. Pergamum was standing strong against the sword from without. May we be faithful when we face persecution. When we live in the place where Satan dwells, where Satan's throne is, may we be that faithful. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. This is where the second edge of the sword comes. You see, there's a there's an outward edge of the sword. There's the, the edge of the sword that people are attacking the church from without, but there's also an inward edge of the sword. And this is where Pergamum's problem lies. The problem isn't that they can't defend themselves from without, that they don't stand firm in the face of persecution. That's not the problem. They do well with that. Where they have the problem is in the exact same place that Ephesus was really strong, and that is with doctrine. Listen, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. What's the teaching of Balaam? Who put us who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. What is he talking about? Well, let's go back. Numbers chapter 22. This is one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament because where else do you get a talking donkey? I mean, come on. This is just great stuff here. God, um, uh, Balak comes to Balaam, Balaam, and Balaam um, is this prophet for hire. Okay, there's... That's a whole nother set of worms. I'm not, I'm not going to dig into that bag of worms, but, um, Balaam is this prophet for Hilam, and Balak comes to him and says, I want you to curse a people for me. And Balaam says, well, I got to pray about it. Okay. Prays about it. God says no. So Balaam says no. Balak tries again. More honorable princes. The, see, see, the first time he sent some messengers. The second time he brings some princes, and the third time he brings even more honorable princes. He's trying to butter up Balaam, and he's showing him all of these wonderful gifts. and I'm willing to pay top dollar for you to do this job. Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, Balak sends to Balaam, and Balak is um, he's willing to pay any price. So. Balaam prays in chapter 22, verse 20, and God came to Balaam at night and said to him, if the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. So now he's going to go to Moab to do kind of what Balak wants. At this point, he doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. Well, what happens along the way donkey refuses to go and Balaam says you're going to go and hits the donkey and then happens a second time and it happens a third time and this time uh, his his foot gets crushed against the wall because the donkey won't go anymore and then finally the donkey talks to him why have you beaten me these three times and Balaam without missing a beat is like because you won't go you know you know uh, you know if a donkey talks to you and, and you don't even think anything of that that you're probably not focused <laughs> God opens up his eyes and he sees the angel in front of him, gets him focused, says, "You're going with these guys, but you're going to say what I tell you to say." So he does. He goes, Balak brings him to a place. Balaam starts talking. And he's supposed to be cursing Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce who the Lord has not denounced? From the top of the crags I see him. From the hills I behold him. Behold the people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. Well, that's not much of a curse, is it? Balak gets mad. Balaam says, I'm sorry. That's what God told me to say. So that's what I said. He says, well, come on. Let me take you to another place. Same thing happens. <laughs> this is why I love this story. 2324 or 2325. And Balak, this is after the second blessing on Israel. Balak said to Balaam, do not curse them at all and do not bless them at all. Just shut up. Quit talking. So they try again. He blesses them again. Balak gets mad and then Balaam gives him one free curse on him. By the way, Listen Listen to the part of this fourth, this final oracle. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. Edom will, shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemy, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Then he looks at Amalek and curses them. He looks on the Kenites and curses them. Alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from Katim and shall afflict Ashur and Eber. And he too shall come to utter destruction. Then Balaam rose and went back to his place. All of these enemies of the people of Israel, the ones that are trying to curse him, the ones that are trying to defeat him, the ones that are trying to overcome him are not overcoming him. Instead, they're getting crushed because these are God's people and God will not stand for them to be cursed. But what the problem with Balaam is not in this part of the story. It's what happens very next. Chapter 25, verse 1. Look at it in your Bible. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Now, how did that happen? Balaam. He said, I can't curse them. But if you want to bring a curse on them, here's what you need to do. Get your daughters. Send your daughters in there. The problem with Balaam, the way of Balaam is to... Subvert God's plan. The fact of the matter is that when, when you can't overcome the church or, or God's people, Israel, doesn't matter which one you're talking about. You can't overcome them by assaulting them. You can't overcome them by attacking them. Right? On this rock I'll build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You're not going to overcome the church by direct assault. The way you overcome the church, the way you overcome God's people is by sneaking in through the back door and causing them to commit sin. Sin is what will bring down God's people. That's the way of Balaam. Make them sin. Entice them. It's amazing how much harm you can do with someone who's willing To be deceptive and get in on the inside and work their work. That was Pergamum's problem. They looked okay on the outside. A tree in my yard looked fairly healthy, except it wasn't growing leaves. The inside was rotted, it was dead, it was still standing. It hadn't decayed enough to fall. It was rotted out. If you want to know what will destroy a church, it ain't attacking it from the outside. That's not going to work. It's sin in the inside. And that's not just corporate sin. That's not the sin that everybody's doing. That's individual sins. Little here, little there. Just small things make a big impact. Threaten the life of the community. The problem in Pergamum was they weren't fighting off the people on the inside. The wolves in sheep's clothing. And that's what Jesus has against them. Not only those who hold the teaching of Balaam. He mentions eating food sacrificed to idols most likely because there's plenty of places to idol worship in Pergamum. He's probably talking about going to worship idols and eating the food there there's one it's one thing to go buy meat from the marketplace and that meat had been devoted to idols and this is the remainder part that didn't get consumed and so they just they sell it at a discount that's one thing that's a whole different issue that paul deals with in first corinthians this issue is they are going and participating in the false worship you know you never can be too careful yeah I've got Yahweh, but you know I just want to make sure all my bases are covered. I don't really want to get killed. I mean, it's so strong the persecution i so i just so I say Caesar is Lord, and I don't mean it, so what no, nobody means it when they say it. There's a few nuts who do, but most of us just just say it just to say it. I mean, it ain't real, and I don't believe it why Why should it bother? Do you see what happens? Just a little bit. Just that teeny tiny little step. Closer, closer, and closer. I'm about to fall off a cliff. We cannot let sin fester. We cannot let false doctrine fester, because if we do, we're going to go the way of Pergamum. Verse 15 so also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Oh, I'm sorry. Second Peter. This is what Peter says about Balaam. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. He's talking about false teachers. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Isn't that something? When the donkey has to stop you from your own madness, you know you've lost it. So also some of you hold to the teaching. You have some who hold to the teaching in the Nicolaitans. We don't know exactly what the Nicolaitans were teaching. Nothing really survives that tells us for sure. But it was... Probably a lawless sort of lifestyle kind of teaching. What Ephesus was really good at was weeding out this false doctrine. Pergamum, on the other hand, does not. So I find it interesting. With Ephesus, you've left your first love, but you're really, really solid on biblical truth. In Pergamum, they're not solid on truth. Oh, they can withstand the assaults from without, but they're rotten on the inside. Therefore, repent. I love it when the Bible is just very simple and clear. Stop it. Turn around. You're headed the wrong way. There's no five steps to being better. 10 doctrines that are essential for you to recognize. He doesn't give them a checklist of these are all the steps you need to take. He just says, dummy, quit doing it. Turn around. Turn around. Repent. I mean, how much clearer does the call need to be? Repent. Repent. If you're allowing sin to rot out your core being To rot the depths of your soul, repent. If you're allowing false doctrine to take you every which way the wind blows instead of being grounded in biblical truth, repent. Quit swaying. Quit faltering. Quit rotting. Repent. If not, I will come. Oh boy. You know, he is coming the question is what's he coming to do is he coming to judge your sin is he coming to deal with the problems that you won't or have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power are you washed in the blood of the lamb you see his coming doesn't have to be scary It can be exciting. Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. I have a double-edged sword of my own. You've been facing a double-edged sword. I have one of my own. And I promise you this. You don't want to fight him. You don't want to take up arms against Christ. Not this Jesus. Not this Jesus that holds the seven stars in his hand. Not this Jesus whose eyes burn with fire and whose hair is white as snow and who has a golden sash about him and who has the double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. This Jesus who is the victor. This Jesus who is the champion. This Jesus who is the Messiah. This Jesus who is God in human flesh. You don't want to fight this Jesus. To the one who conquers, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This, um, the the Greek reads. It's hard to tell what exactly the Greek says because it could be that no one knows what's on the stone except the person receiving it. Or it could be that no one has ever seen the name before it's written on the stone. This, this is an interpretation, and your Bible may read a little bit differently, and that's okay. Here's what I know about it. I know, I know the one who gives the name and who gives the stone. This white stone actually may refer to um, the, the, the chief priest. You've heard me mention this before, I think, but the chief priest had this, uh, um, this breastplate with the uh, 12 stones, each one symbolizing one of the tribes of Israel. And in, inside that, there was like a little pocket. And in the pocket, he would keep two stones. One was called the Urim and one was called the Thummim. Um, and he would make decisions based on those stones, the Urim, I believe, if I got this right, and, and I may have this wrong, the Urim was a white stone. It was a stone of of approval. It was a stone, so um, it was a yay vote. Let's put it that way. You vote yay, you're in favor of something. Someone has approval, you give them a white stone in those days. And so it refers to that aspect I'm giving you the the vote of approval. I'm giving you the vote that says, I'm with you. I'm giving you the vote that says, you have my approval. It's almost as if God's saying, you're either for me or against me. And if you're standing for truth, I'm with you, but if you're not, I can't be. What God tells the Pergamum church is, you can't be rotten on the inside and be alive. God has called each and every one of us to live a life that comes from within. Remember when he talks about... uh, if. Any man is in him, he has this fountain of life flowing from out of him. There's a reason he doesn't say flowing through him or into him. He talks about flowing out of him. There's a reason why he says that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Things come from inside out. And if you are rotten on the inside, it will come out. But if you are not rotten on the inside, that will come out too. And you can put the facade on if you want. You can try to whitewash. You can try to make it look fine on the outside if you want to try to do that. But the fact of the matter is, it do not be long. It won't be long, but your rot's going to show through. If you've ever had a smoker in a house, you know that when you start smoking in the house or when someone starts smoking in the house, putting a slab of paint on the wall does not fix the problem. It just bleeds right through. That's exactly what sin will do. You got to kill that baby. You got to get the good stuff on it to deal with the problem. The way the roundup kills weeds gets into the roots. If you want to deal with the sin, you got to get into the root of it. How do you do that? Repent. This evening, I want to give you a chance to repent. Maybe, maybe your sins are... Maybe you're kind of like Martin Luther. You're confessing things that to God that God is just saying, why are you confessing this? This isn't his, um, he was Catholic at the time and you have to confess to a priest and he was a monk. And so the monk would confess to the abbot. And Martin Luther drove his abbot crazy confessing he was under such guilt. This was before he, before he realized what Romans. One sixteen was saying the just shall live by faith before he really got that and realized that it's faith that justifies us and and not our works he's still trying to earn the favor of god and he feels like every time he sinned he's condemned to hell again and he's driving his abbot nuts because he wants to confess every 20 seconds and finally the abbot says you need something to do (laughs) go pastor this church but there is a time for confession. And so just where you are, I'm not going to ask you to confess out loud. Don't do that. But where you are, I would ask you to take a minute to confess. What's what's rotting away in your soul? What is it that you just haven't, you just can't let go of, no matter how hard you try? Or maybe, maybe that it's got a hold of you, that you're not even holding on to it, but it's holding on to you. Confess that to God and repent. Father, we recognize this lesson from Pergamum that you can't be alive while you're dying on the inside. Lord, we know that these sins that we're confessing to you, we have no power to break them, not in ourselves, not not just us, but God, through your Holy Spirit and dwelling within us, we have all power. Lord, I pray that you would do the work that we cannot do. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there's there's any worthless things, any presumptuous sins, any iniquity. Cleanse me. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be white as snow. Create in me a clean heart as the psalmist prayed. Oh, God, do that in all of us. God, like a rotten tooth, you you may need to get rid of a lot of decay. You may need to scrape a lot of things out, clean a lot of things out. God, you do what you need to do, but Lord, we also pray that you would not leave a gaping hole Fill it with your spirit, your goodness, your righteousness, your love, your character. Help us be the kind of people that will stand against the attacks from without and that will stand against the attacks from within. Help us not get caught up in doctrines that lead us astray. Help us not give an inch when it comes to our moral fiber Help us honor you with everything we do. Lord, most of all, help us be more like you. No matter what sword we may face. No matter what trial we may have to walk through. Temptation we may have to resist. Difficulty we may have to bear. Suffering we may have to endure. May we be found faithful in you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for his sacrifice winning us back to yourself. God, may we live in light of his devotion by giving the full measure of ours. May we not be like the church of Pergamum. But may we stand firm. May we bring you glory. May we stand out as residents of the true city on a hill. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.